What I realized is that very seldom in my life have I had sort of a light over a door saying, this is it, go on through, this is where you should be going. I, I feel more like a pinball, I guess, more where you sort of get pushed along different paths by knowing what you don't want. From Middlebury College, this is It's Not What You Think, a show about the way we navigate life unfolding. I'm Erin Davis. It's Not What You Think is a storytelling series we have live events on campus where students, alum, and special guests, people who make it look easy, talk about times when, well, it wasn't. This is episode two, Finding the Thing. What's the thing, you ask? Well, exactly. We hear all the time that having a mentor is critical to professional success and growth. Mentors are the people who see you and encourage us to take risks that'll get us to the next level. But what if you don't have access to a mentor, or even a role model, really? You know you want to be something, but you just don't know what that something is. Our story today comes from Professor Jessica Teets. Nowadays, she's a tenured professor in the political science department at Middlebury. But when it came to laying the groundwork for her professional life, a lot of times, she was on her own like when her college advisor discouraged her from applying to graduate school. He said, you know, you're just wasting your money. Why would you apply there? Most of our students go on to another state school or stay here. And I said, I'm, I'm going to try. You know, I don't really have anything to lose except the application fee. Spoiler, she gets in. Professor Teets has been an overachiever from the start, but didn't always know which achievement she was really gunning for. She told her story in front of a live audience on Middlebury's campus. It starts in high school. I grew up in a, a really small rural town um, on the border between West Virginia and Maryland. Um, really small town, like 2,000 people. And most people didn't go on to college. Most people um, still are on their family farms. And I actually had for credit a shop class and we did the, the VOAG class. So we had a greenhouse and those are the types of classes I took. And I remember my junior year in high school, I had this really great French teacher and um, he took a group of us on a trip to France France um, for about a month and I just realized it was the first time I had ever gotten a passport or been on a plane or left the country and it was this really revolutionary experience where I just realized there's so much out there that I just know nothing about and how do you gain that kind of knowledge and I thought well you know college might be the place. My parents wanted me to go to college, but they didn't really know how to apply or how to tell me what I would get out of it and so I had to figure out SATs and a financial aid and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but I ended up going to University of Maryland, which was a huge change. So I grew up in this really, really small rural town. And then I went right outside of Washington, DC to this school that at the time had about 34,000 students. I think now it's at like 55,000, it's huge. And so there was definitely culture shock and, and getting used to that. In fact, I remember that when I first got there, I thought the campus was just the interior part because I thought if there was a road going Going around it that had to be the end of it, right? Like how would you have a road through your campus? So um, I had a lot to learn. <laughs> when it was time to register for classes, Jessica made sure to sign up for French. But the magic, the sparkle, the inspiration of that high school trip to France, it didn't make the leap into the college classroom. 
I had this horrible professor who, she liked to sit at the back of the room and mock us while we gave presentations. <laughs> she would mock our accents or our pronunciation. So it was really stressful to, to take a class with her. Madame Pascal, you know, you'll never forget the name of like your worst professors. Hopefully your best professors you remember too. Um, and so basically I decided that I was going to sit out the next class in the series and wait for the next professor to pick it up. And I really wanted to take Arabic because I thought what a cool system of writing and I wanted to learn that. Um, but that was full, so I picked Chinese. I was supposed to take French the following semester and study abroad in Nice, which is really nice. And um, instead, I, I fell in love with Chinese. I loved the logic of the system. I loved the characters and then the spoken part, left brain, right brain, you know, all together in one language. And all in all, I was just, I was hooked. She still had her passport from that first trip to France and soon found herself on a study abroad flight to Beijing. It was 1995. On the plane there, though, I realized like I'd only taken a semester of Chinese, and I started panicking because I'm like, well, when I get off the plane and they ask me something, all I can say are the days of the week. I could count to 20, tell them my favorite color, and you know, tell them I'm American, and that's pretty much it. And so I started to panic because I was like, wow, I hope they have a sign or something for me. Um, and they did. The driver spoke no English, but he had a sign with my name on it. So we just kind of did some sign language, figured it out, and, and went. To the dorm, but it was really a change in living standards. So for example, we did have a room in which we could shower that had been set up for us, but we only had hot water from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. See, I still remember that after all those years, because you needed to get in line way before 8 if you wanted to actually get hot water. And so we would all queue up down the hallway to get in the shower for our one hour of hot water. And, um, and also the fact that heat was rationed as well, so all energy was rationed, so I would wear all of my clothes all of the time. But you know, China, China is not a democracy now and it definitely wasn't a democracy then. And so, you know, I also made some mistakes that, that have really shaped the way that I interact with the Chinese political system now. For example, we had this um, teacher whose daughter, younger daughter, would come in and she would visit with all of us. She was trying to learn English. And so I spent a lot of time with her. We went to the zoo together, did things like that. Um, it, but it turned out she was stealing from the student rooms. Um, the rooms couldn't be locked. They would lock us in at night with a bicycle lock, but you couldn't lock your own individual door. And so um, she was going in and stealing. And the way that I found this out is I came back from the bathroom and found her in my room going through my cash that I had converted. So not, not knowing this system, I reported her to the police. That's what you do, right? And lots of things had been stolen. And you know, for, for the students, it wasn't like you had a credit card or a debit card or anything like that. You had to you know, exchange your, uh, whatever, whatever those things are called. Do you guys are, Thank you, traveler's checks. It's, it's been so long since I've even used one. So you have to exchange your traveler's checks. So it would, this was a real hardship for a lot of the students who just, their money was gone. And so I reported her to the police thinking that they would just resolve this and get the money back. But instead, they brought her in and made us stand in a circle around her and they, they beat her in front of us until she confessed that she had taken the money and then also until she said what had happened and it turned out that an uncle
uncles, somebody older in her family had told her to steal from us and had taken that money so she couldn't even give it back, which is why they continued to beat her as they wanted her to give the money back. So that was a big learning experience for me as far as traveling abroad and the police and the state and how they interact with people. I've been going to China and studying Chinese ever since. After the University of Maryland, Jessica did make it to the University of Chicago, despite the discouragement from her college advisor. She got her master's in international relations. A little more savvy now in the ways of navigating the world, Jessica knew she wanted to go to law school and would need a little experience to get into a good one. She moved back to D.C. for a job working at the Department of Justice. What I found was that I hated the law. <laughs> it, was, it would have been a really bad decision for me to have gone straight into a law program um, that basically I loved the analysis, but the legal documentation was so detail-oriented. If you spelled somebody's name wrong, you added an S to their last name, on the subpoena, once you filed that paperwork and it was incorrect, then you couldn't call that person again. That was just done. Or if you missed the deadline by even five minutes, that was it. You couldn't file the case. You had missed your window. And so it was really, really detail-oriented in an important way, and that, I, that just was something that wasn't really a good fit for me. I think what I love about this story is how Jessica just keeps moving forward. A great teacher made her fall in love with French, but a bad teacher made her hate it. Scheduling logistics kept her out of the Arabic class that was her backup choice, so she ended up in Chinese, which totally changed the course of her career. She'd made it from a small town to a prestigious college and earned a coveted degree and finally ended up with her eyes toward law school only to find out that the reality of the work felt like a tedious nightmare. No offense to the lawyers out there. It just wasn't a good fit. So she stopped to take stock. She turned to her network, chatted up her friends, and found a job that finally seemed right. Consulting, corporate strategy. It had everything she loved from the law, research, analysis, collaboration, without all the details and I loved it. I, I really loved it. She was living in D.C. It was 2001. As I kept getting promoted, I had more and more meetings, more and more administrative work, and I was doing less and less research for clients, which is, is what I really loved about it. And so, you know, this happens in a lot of companies. When you get promoted, you get promoted onto a, an administrative path. And um, I I would say that I was 80% satisfied, 20% dissatisfied, and so I might have stayed for a while, but then that was when 9-11 happened, and where our company was located was right across the Potomac River from um, the Pentagon, and so we could see it on fire, we could see it burning. It was one of those experiences where we were, you know, once we sort of figured out the confusion of what was going on and that we should evacuate the building, um, because at first they thought they were car bombs and they wanted us to stay in the building. Um, but once we evacuated and I'm trapped on this bridge leading from DC to Virginia with all the people that I worked with, all 10 of us packed in one station wagon, and we were just in stop traffic watching the plane circle us. So we had our windows rolled down so that we could jump out if, you know, something hit the bridge and I remember thinking if this is it if this bridge does blow up was this a life well lived is this what I you know is this what I wanted 
And I thought, you know, 80% just isn't enough. Like maybe that would be in a normal situation, 80% happiness is enough, but I want 100% or at least 98%. And so um, I decided then I, I resigned and I went back to graduate school and got my PhD and, um, and then ended up here where I would say that, you know, except when I have to grade, I'm probably 98% happy. <laughs> I always tell my students who are seniors and who are graduating is that don't worry so much about finding the thing. There are so many things out there that you would be amazing at and that you would be happy doing that really you just need to try one at a time. Just go ahead and try that thing that you think you really want to do and see how it works out and you'll learn from it in a way that will shape the next step. Jessica Teets is an associate professor in the political science department at Middlebury College and an associate editor at the Journal of Chinese Political Science. If you missed our first episode with Middlebury alum Brandon Hawkins, make sure to go back and listen. He's really great. I keep thinking about some of the things he said, in particular this one line about adjusting to rural life. Okay, I'm here. How do I make this bubble my home. It's a really good question, and it applies to my life even now. Like, for me, I'll say, I have a new baby. I know, I know, no one cares about my baby, but it's interesting because I just started to fold work back into my life, and I haven't exactly hit my stride. But this is my bubble now, and how do I make this bubble my new home? I'm figuring that out. Anyway, what's your bubble? Let us know about the ways that you're adapting as life evolves. Email us and subscribe to the show at our website, midcast.midcreate.net. That's two Ds in midcast and midcreate. Or find us on iTunes. Do you know someone with a great story about making it work? Let me know and let's get them on the show. Special thanks for this episode go to Andy Lloyd, Professor Rachel Jew, Katie Smith-Abbott, Gabby Fuentes, and Matt Lennon. I'm Erin Davis, and this has been It's Not What You Think, a production of Middlebury College. Thanks for listening.